What defines success? There's millions of people with a 27 handicap, there's millions of people with a 10 handicap, there's millions of people with a single digit handicap, but there's only one number one. What happens when you get knocked down? You learn more by your losses than you do by your victories. Because every week when that Sunday's over and done with, that Monday comes along, you're back practicing getting ready to try and win the next week. And every time you lose, you learn something new about going into that next week. What makes some people radiate? I learned very early on, the more work, the harder I worked, the stronger my dedication and belief was, the better and easier and the faster things became. This is Radiate. Hi everyone and welcome to Radiate, the show where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they worked their way to the top. This week it's Hall of Fame golfer and entrepreneur, the shark himself, Greg Norman. For golf fans everywhere, Norman is a legend. Before there was Tiger, before there was Jordan, there was Greg who was the number one golfer in the world for 331 consecutive weeks with 90 tournaments under his belt. But many may not realize he's also one of the most successful retired athletes in the world as the founder and CEO of Great White Shark Enterprises, a conglomerate with interests in everything from golf courses to eyewear. So in this episode, Norman talks about his success in sports and business, the struggles with running a massive company, and yes, he also talks about that stunning collapse at the Masters in 1996. What was going through his mind at that moment. So, here you go. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. So, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really are so excited. I've been so looking forward to this. By the way, I'm not even a golfer. <laughs> well, that's good news. I'm trying to learn, so this is great. So hopefully I can get some tips from you afterwards. <laughs> Let's talk first a little bit about your personal, your life story, right? So you grew up in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, I read a little bit about your background. You were herding cattle on a cattle station in Northern Australia. Well, you've gone deep. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think that you would become the number one, the number one golfer in the world. Oh, never, never. My and my dreams and aspirations was never to be number one golfer. My dreams and aspirations was to be the best I could be, and that that allows you to take the glass ceiling off your head. So you keep climbing, you keep climbing. No matter how good you get, no mm -hmm. matter what you're doing, whether it's golf or whether it's mustering cattle or doing whatever you want to do, or in the business world, if you keep striving to push yourself a little higher and a little higher, and every step gets a little bit more vertical, and sometimes right. a little bit more difficult, but you figure out a way to get up to that next level. So where does that come from, Greg? I mean, this idea that you've got to be the best, though. If you're going to no do something, idea. you're going to be the best. I have no idea. Okay. Absolutely no idea. My, your childhood, your mother, no, your father? My mom and dad would say I was a very independent, you know, um, determined young kid. But every, I think every kid out is a young, independent, determined kid to do whatever they want to do. I had not a clue what I wanted to do. I had no clue at 16 years old whether I'd be a golfer or not. You know, I didn't play golf until I was just before my 16th birthday. Wow. And at that time, I had aspirations to be in a fighter pilot. Pilot. And I was taking, I was an Air Force cadet. I wanted to turn and burn and just chase after bad guys in the sky and all that stuff. And uh, um, But at the end of the day, when I went to join the Air Force, um, I was in the recruitment office with my father and uh, I turned it down. My father looked at me like I was crazy and said, What are you doing? This is your opportunity. This is your career. This is where you always wanted to go. 
And for some reasons, I said no. I didn't know anything about golf. I didn't know I was going to be a professional golfer. I just decided something. But were you and, golfing at that time? I was golfing at the time. Okay. Uh, but I wasn't good enough to say. I probably had a... I started with a 27 handicap and ended up with a scratch in a period of 18 months. Wow. Um, and then that 18-month time frame is when I was going to join that, the Air Force. Um, so something in your gut. Yeah, something. You were like, this isn't the right path. I trusted my instincts. I didn't know what my instincts were telling me to do. All I was saying right there and then was don't sign up to join the Air Force. So, so have you always had that instinct, that gut? I mean, has that guided you in your career? Yeah, sometimes when I don't listen to myself is when I make the big mistakes. You okay. know, in I life, decisions in life and stuff like that. I think, look, your inner self pulls you in the right direction because your inner self knows you, knows your space, knows what your expectations are within yourself. You can't lie to yourself, right? If you t tell yourself a lie, then you're going to, you know, it's going to show through big time very, yeah. very quickly. So, um, you know, when I, if I don't trust my instincts, then, you know, I'm in trouble. So at what point, though, did you say, you know, in that 18-month span, did you say to yourself, Greg, wait a minute, I think I've got something pretty special here. Yeah, when I, when I got down to scratch. Um, That's I, pretty special. Yeah, like that, was, that was pretty special. <laughs> I got down very, very quickly, and I realized I, I only achieved that by the amount of work I put in. So I learned very early on, the more work, the harder the work I worked, the, the stronger my dedication and belief was the better and easier and the faster things became. Mm -hmm. And then you get to a critical mass standpoint. Look, it's very, there's millions of people with a 27 handicap, there's millions of people with a 10 handicap, there's millions of people with a single digit handicap, but there's only one number one. So as you go up the ladder, you know, if you go 100th in the world, there's a lot of other 100 players, but the higher you go, there's only two number twos mm -hmm. and there's only one number one. So once you get there, you can either self-inflict the ceiling on top of yourself or you can say, okay, I'm going to sustain it. I'm going to not allow anybody to push me off my pedestal. Hmm. So what do you got to do? You work even harder and you work even harder. So It becomes a mental game. Right? Of course it does. It's yeah, life is a, all mental. Life's a mental game. Right. Life is a mental game. The whole thing, whether your relationship's married, not married, girlfriend, boyfriend, what you do in life, everything, everything's a, you know, you push yourself and you challenge yourself. So everything about life, no, golf is no different. Mm -hmm. And it's up to the individual about what, how much they want to pull out of themselves and how much they want to step out of that comfort zone, that box, and just take on a little bit more than they've never experienced before. And then you start feeling more aware and more confident and more... Right okay, I like this, or oh, I screwed up over here, why did I screw up? I've got to learn by that mistake and not do it again. So it just becomes a huge learning curve. Now, Greg, I looked on your website, um, and one of the quotes you have uh, that I've read over and over, I've read it, um, that you've quoted before in other interviews is, victory is sweet, but how you handle yourself in defeat mm -hmm. is often more telling. So explain that, why does that hit you? Um, look, we all work hard. When you get to a certain level in sport, let's just keep it in sport. When you get to a certain level in sport, your belief and your expectations is uh, to win, right? That's why we practice so Gotta hard. Be number that's one. Why, well, that's why you, you go to tee up, not to finish second or third or 10th or 20th, you go to tee up to win, or well, I did anyway. Um, so from, from my standpoint, it was what I wanted to do. 
So it was easy for me to say, okay, I won again today. I you know, did all my right things and you know, worked hard, I played well, and I, I beat some of the best players in the world. It's when you get beaten. It's how you, how you performed on the golf course that Sunday. Was it your fault? Did you self-inflict your loss because of lack of concentration, mm -hmm. lack of preparation? Um, did you just quit? Uh, did you say, oh God, you know, you just got mad with yourself and made some stupid mental mistakes? A lot of things come into play. So you learn more by your losses than you do by your victories. Because every week when that Sunday's over and done with, that Monday comes along, you're back practicing getting ready to try and win the next week. And every time you lose, you learn something new about going into that next week. So that's the way I always looked at life. So uh, when has that happened to you? At what moment? Oh, about learning about my losses? Mm -hmm. and, oh, gosh. Uh, believe me, I've lost more than I've won, let me tell you. I've been lucky enough to won 91 golf tournaments, but at the end of the day, I've, I don't know how many golf tournaments I've ever played in, but mm -hmm. you know, my success rate probably maybe in the 20%, maybe close to 30% success. I don't, I'm not, I don't even know. I couldn't even answer that question for you. But uh, um, So you do learn more. And now you walk into life in general. You walk into... What golf gave me, I had to give up a lot to achieve the success and the pinnacle of where you're at because right. you have to sacrifice a lot. You sacrifice your friends, you sacrifice your family because everything is about you. You need the time to practice for yourself. You need your downtime. You need to work out. You need to have. You know, have. You need to follow up and interact with your fans or the media or your corporate people. So it's all your. Your everything revolves around you, and sometimes that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you need a really good team around you that allows you to take away and absorb a lot of that self-centeredness and, you know, the, the sacrifices you do, um, not deliberately um, impart on yourself, but they're the natural fallout of, of being in an individual sport. Right, and, 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 being, and being a superstar in your, in, in your own field. So let's talk a little bit about business because mm -hmm. you decided early on... Um, in the 1980s that you were going to go and get into business, right? And not a lot of athletes do. I mean, I know it's more common these days, but back then, you know, I don't know if a lot of, if a lot of athletes were really leveraging their brand power to go into business. So what made you do that? Well, it was actually the early 90s. Okay, the early um, but in 90s. the late 80s, I made a very interesting decision on my own to invest in a golf manufacturing company called Cobra. Right, that's what I was thinking, yeah. Um, and that decision really rested on myself and not my management company because it was interesting because when you're with a management company, you're a pass-through entity, mm -hmm. right? A management company will go say, okay, Greg, we're going to sign you up with company X and you're going to make X amount of money per year. They're going to take their percentage-wise and, you know, I'm going to be... This is IMG, right? You were well, with IMG at the, the time? Every management company is the same. So, okay. yes, I was with IMG, <laughs> but every management company came. So, you know... They, they get you a three-year deal or a five-year deal. They're getting their 20% commission or 15% commission. But what happens at the end of it all? Is, is there another Greg Norman? Mm -hmm. Yes, there is always going to be another Greg Norman or another great athlete, right? So they turn their attention back down here. So now you become a pass-through entity. Your, your use-by date is very defined in sport. You know, you're at the top of your, your pinnacle, and then all of a sudden when you start going down, there's somebody else coming up. 
And you've said in golf it's, what, 15 years? A it's 15 about years? a 15-year cycle. Okay. If you look at it, it's, historically, it's about a 15-year cycle okay. of the best of the best. But, so I recognized then by investing in the Cobra, I had a huge opportunity of testing my uh, wherewithal of understanding business. I understood that Cobra was paying me an endorsement fee. They wanted me to invest about $1.8 million into this company to get 12% of it. I knew what my endorsement fee, I knew my, I was going to get that $1.8 million investment back in a very short period of time because of my endorsement fee. So to me, I was a, it was a win-win. Mm-hmm. I was going to end up with a 12% of a company that was doing $37 million about approximately at that time. And I knew if I kept performing well, I would hopefully raise the level of the company by its awareness. And you know, if I use the equipment, somebody else might want to use the equipment, right? It's, it's pretty simple, uh, one-on-one on um, But you, you know, ended up making, marketing. what, $40 million on that 1.8 or something? Yeah, we made a lot of money. I made a lot of money out of it. Um, you know, at the end up, uh, we sold the company for like 70 plus, 700 million plus. Wow. So, uh, so it was, that was a really good... Now, where I'm going with the, with the management standpoint, I offered them a piece of the 12% if they wanted to invest in it. They said no. I go, oh, that's interesting. They say I only want to keep their percentage of my retainer, right? Mm. My endorsement fee. So that little light went off in my head then going, okay, they're not investing in anything else but themselves. So you really are a pass-through entity because they didn't have faith in... They weren't really believing in you. They weren't in believing. So all of a sudden you go, okay, I'm going to park this aside. Now this is in the late 80s, right? So 1993, uh, when the contract was coming up for renegotiation with IMG, I decided not to renegotiate, not, not re-sign with them. It was like, oh, you can't do that. You're number one player in the world. You can't do that. You've got to re-sign with them. I said, no, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do my own business because you know why? I have a, all of a sudden, I've got a logo, which is the Shark logo. All of a sudden, I understood what marketing and branding was about by putting bums on the seats, people coming and watching me play. TV revenues were centered around whether I was going to play in golf tournaments or not. So that if you had the TV revenue, you could go sell title sponsorships. So I was a bit of the linchpin of, when you're number one in the world, you're a bit of a linchpin, the cog in the wheel. So I started saying, okay, why aren't I in control of my own destiny here? And so I decided to start off my own business. A lot easier said than done, right? <laughs> what so, was the biggest learning curve for you? I mean, like, what did you learn that was really surprising when you started? Human resources. Business is easy. Human resources are tough. What do you mean by that? Explain. Because if you don't have people who drink the Kool-Aid with you and about your dreams and your vision, about where you want to go and how you want to build your company, then, you know, they're they're going to be a laggard. They'll be a sea anchor, right? Because they're only there for a salary. They're not there to really grow and build the company. Mm -hmm. So human resources can even make or break you. And over a period of time, I've seen good people in. I've seen great people in. And I have great people with me now, but I've also seen a lot of sea anchors. So, you know, you've got to identify it. And the hard part is identifying somebody who's worked with you for a long time and who's not drinking the Kool-Aid, mm-hmm. and is not doing their, their, I'll say it to another way, who don't feel like they're accountable for some of their actions they do within the company. Accountability is really important. Um, so, you know, I'm gonna, I would say like legacy employees, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, that's a big management problem. That's a big management problem. So I didn't go to any college to learn about human resources. I didn't go to college about learn anything about marketing or branding. I trusted my gut. Mm. So 
When I called all my executives together a couple of years ago, I take them out to my ranch in Colorado to do an executive retreat for three days. I took about oh, maybe four, five, six weeks to prepare for this. I gave them a 12-year horizon. I gave them a 200-year horizon. Now, why would they all looked at me just like you did? What are you thinking? You're crazy. <laughs> well, if they don't buy into the long-term vision and belief that what I can do with a brand and build this brand, you know, beyond my, you know, death, mm -hmm. then don't be with me, because your responsibility is to drink that Kool-Aid, believe on the vision that I can take this company in a certain direction, and then you have the responsibility of keep perpetuating that and keep pushing it and keep pushing it. And then you may have the next generation of their son or daughter might say, God, I'm going to work for where my dad or my mother worked for that right, company. Right. So it becomes a generational thing. And, um, you know, I picked 200 years. I don't know why I picked 200 long years. Long enough, I you won't live 200 years. Yeah. It's long enough. But, you know, what's a generation? Approximately 20 years. So 10, 10 generations. Right. So that's how I looked at it. So... I'm sure you get asked this question all the time, but like, what did you take from your time in sports, in golf, into the business world? Were the, you know, was there something very unique that you did in, in sports that you took into business? Preparation. Preparation is due diligence, right? We go uh, get ready for a golf tournament. We know the golf course. If it's a new golf course, you actually learn what's it all about. Who designed it? How was the design? What is bunker sand, the configuration of the bunker sand, the type of soils. So I used to take different sand wedges with me depending on what the texture of the sand was in the bunker. Depends on the firmness of the soil, depends on the bounce of the sand wedge I would take. So mm -hmm. I would carry about three sand wedges with me most of the time. And, and uh, so that's doing your due diligence, knowing where you're going, understand it. And then you'll practice if it's a very hilly golf course, you knew it was going to be tough on your shin splints, it'll be tough on your legs, it's going to be, you're going to be walking for six straight days, Tuesday through to Sunday. So you would, you would so think of all this oh, you prep yourself for it. You'd look at the weather, see where the prevailing winds would be, you look at the direction of the holes. So now all of a sudden, now you're doing your preparation, you're doing your homework. And before I went to bed every night, the last thing I did was I always looked at the weather report to see where the wind was going to shift to. Mm -hmm. So the next day, when I woke up, I could already, I'd already mentally prepared to say, okay, the 13th hole yesterday played downwind, today it's going to be into the wind, so now we, these are where, you know, the hazards into the wind are different than the hazards downwind. So. And is there something similar you do in business? Absolutely. Okay. You get prepared. You understand where you want to go. Uh, you've got to build your business model get that in place and make sure when you get your business model in place you build to it and then you have a launch date what is that launch date how are we going to launch it now you bring in marketing and now you got to then you bring in your publicist make sure how are we going to get the message out there what mm -hmm. are we going to do the right way so it's a combination of different things but it's absolutely the execution the same way as preparation due diligence and greg i'd read a story i think it might have been an interview it was a profile piece about you about how um, you've become so successful. I think you're one of the most, um, the wealthiest uh, retired athletes in the world. Um, but early on, when you were a pro, but you were younger, um, I read stor a, a story about something along the lines of like you had fallen asleep at meetings with potential business partners that you weren't taking it seriously. Is that true? No, that's not true. <laughs> no, I don't ever remember falling asleep. I might have fallen asleep because I was jet lagged <laughs> as much as I used to fly around the world. but. Now, I've, I was, I've always been the individual that uh, I'm a listener more than a talker um, because you learn more by listening than by speaking. Mm 
Um, so if I'm in with uh, people who are a lot more uh, articulate and more intelligent than I am, I'm going to step back and I'm going to absorb. And it's not like I'm trying to take in 100% of it. I might take in one or two little tidbits mm -hmm. and I'm going to go, okay, how do I put this down? I'm a copious note writer. I mean, I always write notes. If I'm sitting in a room, I'll write notes. I'll put pages and pages of it. If I'm on a conference call with you, all I'm doing is writing, writing while I'm talking, writing while you're talking. So, does that help your get, memory too? It I does. Find it that helps, helps me. Yeah, it helps my memory, but it also helps me go back and, okay, when I wrote down something that might have triggered something else I had in my mind, but I didn't have time to write it down, it'll trigger something else. So it allows you to, to really keep your brain engaged. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, um, from my standpoint, um, no, I have never fallen asleep in a meeting. Uh, I might have fallen asleep at some gala dinners. <laughs> Stuff like that when they're boring as batteries. I wouldn't you know blame what? you at all on that. Um, I want to talk about some moments in your career, both in golf and in business. But in business first, I know you started the Opportunity Fund mm -hmm. after the financial crisis. Right. So what happened to your businesses during the financial crisis? What did you learn? That's a great question. Um, I learned that it was the hardest, probably the hardest two years of my life because I had to lay off some people. Uh, especially in the golf course design business. Mm -hmm. um, I did learn very, very quickly that golf course, my golf course design business is an economic indicator because AR, account receivables, when you see, a, I do now know when a recession is about to hit, your account receivables will slow down, will get pushed out, right? Huh. So um, you know that, okay, something's on the horizon. People are not uh, going to pay their bills. So, okay, and we saw that in the start of, end of 2000, middle of 2006 into 2007. I was actually in, in Turkey giving a speech at a summit over there, and everybody was saying, oh, something's happening, something's gonna go on, and boom, right there and then, yeah, everybody was trying to make a bet. How long is this crisis gonna last? Some said three years, some said five years, and here we are today, we're still nine years, 10 years into it, right? It's a joke. Um, so we're an economic indicator, and then on the flip side, when the economy is raging in different parts of the world, people don't like getting 0% on their money, right? right? So they're looking for a good investment. What is that safe harbor? A lot of safe harbors, maybe residential communities, maybe golf courses, maybe hotel resorts. Mm -hmm. Hotel resorts add up into the hospitality business, but most of the time the amenity is a golf course or two. Right. Um, so people are willing to spend anywhere between 180 to 800 million to a billion dollars on a development we get to see where the money's going first. Because okay. they call us up and say, Greg, we need a golf course, and this is we're gonna build six, seven hotels here. It's gonna be a 15-year build-out, but the money's obviously in place first. Mm -hmm. So that's why we see it on the other side of the fence as well. So I'm curious what you're seeing with your accounts receivables right now. Um, actually, in the golf course design business, we're seeing a turnaround. Um, okay. And it's, we're even seeing it turn around here in the United States. Wow. Um, a lot more on the redesign, uh, but we're getting a lot more inquiries about uh, high-end residential communities because I think we've flushed out the system, right? Yeah. Of the 80s and the middle 90s when we built 400 golf courses a year, year on year, the inventory has been flushed out. So you know, there hasn't been a, a um, change in the growth of the population. People, the population of America is still growing. But right you're finding now that people want to get back into their sport. And golf, again, is now the housing side of it, you look at it, and housing residential communities. Um, you're looking at hospitality side things as well, things that are active there. 
Um, so we're seeing this, it's not going to happen immediately this year, but we're seeing an upturn and my prediction maybe two to three years from now, you know, you'll start seeing a, a significant increase. So Greg, but from that, from that low moment, when you had to lay off people, I mean, did you do anything different in your businesses afterwards? Oh, absolutely. Okay, totally like readjusted my model. Totally readjusted my model. You had to, I had to get the model in place for what would happen when this recession finishes. Do you want to be trying to go on the downward motion or do you want to be getting ready for that pendulum to swing up? So mm -hmm. I completely changed my business model. And one of them, I'll give you a quick snapshot without going too deep, is I got out of the sports marketing mode, mm -hmm. which my company has always been around because I was an athlete, I was a performing athlete. So you were, I was always a sports marketing company with a little bit of business locked into it, but now I've flipped it. I've gone more business and got rid of the sports marketing side. So now you have the flexibility. So now my, my B2B, on a, it's on a global front, not just a you know, United States domestic front. So, right. so it allows me to um, hedge in a lot of ways. Right, so you've got places. a diverse, a more diverse portfolio. A more diverse portfolio, yep. So Greg, I mean, talking about highs, you know, in this on this show we talk a lot about highs and lows in careers, mm -hmm. and a lot of people like to hear about the lows because yeah. they want to hear about what people learn. So the viewers obviously would want to know about that big moment in your career, right? The 1996 Masters. Mm -hmm. I mean, what did you learn from that moment? Um, well, first of all, I knew when I walked off the 18th green, I had to embrace it. I had to embrace my downfall. Uh, was it self-inflicted? Yes. And what nobody else did, even though Nick Faldo played an extremely good round that after that day, um, I kind of self-inflicted my own anxiety, angst, pain, whatever it is. So to me, it's stepping up, falling on your sword as fast as you possibly can, admitting that I screwed up. So, so I made you owned that, it right away. I owned it. I took, I took ownership. I walked into that media room and boom, I, I let it all out. And from that moment onwards, I actually got more support from more people because people respected the fact that you do take ownership to your failures. You do fall on your sword. Um, and I, I, to this day, I mean, I have boxes and boxes of people, letters people who have written to me over the years. To this um, day? To this day, yeah. I mean, uh, people will, I mean, not almost immediately after two years after people come up to me and say, Greg, you taught me so much about how I should educate my son or my daughter when they come off a field, hmm. whether it's soccer or whether it's any other field, about what it's like when you fail and if you lose, and if you lose a, a big final match when you were supposed to win, you know, and they say, you taught me how to teach my kids. And you go, okay, there you go. Wow. I, I win, you know? So I win by helping other people educate their kids how to be a better loser or right. how to accept failure or defeat or an implosion or whatever you want to call it. Are you surprised that even to this day, people still talk about it to this day, new sites still talk about it? Are you surprised by how it's... Uh, not really. Look, sports, sports is an interesting magnifier of people's thoughts, wishes, desires. Um, some, there's a lot of jealousy sometimes where people are happy to see somebody else's failure so they want to regurgitate that in their right. own mind um, you know it's just like with Jordan Spieth this year for example I got inundated with calls I didn't want to get involved because this is Jordan's time right and I knew exactly how he felt right and there's not an athlete on this planet I promise you this in, in individual sports or in team sports that haven't come flat out headlong into a failure or a disaster or whatever 
We've all gone through that. If you're going to put your if you're going to put your neck out there, it's going to happen. But I, I I refuse to get involved with making one comment about Jordan. He has to find his own space. But I will say this: that I did say immediately to my wife and my friends that Jordan should go play the next week and face the music. Hmm. Don't wait another month to go and play the TPC Championship because you'll still be asked the same questions, right? Just because you run away and lay on a beach or hide somewhere, it never goes away. Right. So you're better off facing it straight away. And what happens, he goes in the TPC, he misses the cut. So now it's compounded the problem. Now people say, okay, the Masters had a bigger effect on him than what it should have done. So now it just, you see how it all, dealing right. with dealing with the head on, it kind of answers a lot of questions if you deal with it head on, right? In Absolutely. Many ways. Within yourself. Within yourself. Yes. Right. Did you ever call or talk to Jordan Spieth after that? No. Or okay. No. Okay. Mm -mm. I mean, I'm just I'm curious if they ever you know come to you for advice or anything like that. Occasionally, a couple of guys have done. Um, yeah. You know, which is nice. It's it's actually I think that to me is the most rewarding thing now in life in sport for me. Um, is when you do get asked by a young kid to say, hey, you know, can you give me a piece of advice? Um, because I've been there, done it, no matter right. whether, you, whether you win or whether you lose. You've, I've been successful in a lot of ways. I've failed in a lot of ways. And, and, and just by instilling one piece of advice, if I can make another player better than what I have been mm -hmm. or more successful than what I am today, that's, I'm the happiest guy in the world because I know how difficult it is to be successful. And so if you can help someone be more successful than you, whew, that's the most rewarding thing in life. Well, I grew up, like I said, I don't, I don't play golf, but I grew up when Tiger Woods mm -hmm. was really on the rise and was like the, it, you know, the, the legend in golf. I mean, I'm curious what advice you would give Tiger Woods right now. Um, I think uh, right now, I don't know him, but reading and seeing and played a little bit of golf with him, I'd ask him to open up a little bit and be just to be a little bit more accessible and open, because you are a public figure. Whether you like it or not, you are. Just because you're pretty good at hitting a white golf ball from point A to point B, does that make you so different than everybody else? No, but because you do it and the media and everybody else has put all this attention on you and their exposure on you, yes, you are. So you are part of the public. You are, you are their domain to some degree. Yes, you can be an introvert when you need to be, but you need to accept the fact that you are a, the people's person. Right. And if you have to go out there and spend a little bit more time and give a little bit more, so be it. Because the game of golf has been great to all of us who have been number one players in the world. And will continue to be great to all of us who have been number one players in the world. So embrace that. Embrace your responsibilities. Simple as that. So Greg, how do you build a personal brand? Well to, well, to me, it just it was an evolution, to tell you the truth. Uh, when I was number one player in the world, and this might be a long-winded long answer, but when I was number one player in the world, um, I touched on it before, I didn't want to be a pass-through entity with a management company. I recognized that I had some value. People would pay money to come watch me play. Um, companies would pay me to carry either the golf bag or put a patch on my shirt or wear their clothing. So I understood that there was some value in my, my presence, in my sport. Um, so, and also understanding I didn't want to be a pass-through entity. So I identified very quickly in my life that uh, I wanted to build equity in my own brand. Um, I was very lucky in the beginning because of Reebok, who I was an endorsed player for, 
the owner Paul Fireman wanted to start up a line of clothing called Greg Norman Collection. Hence, how did I understand about <laughs> licensing and all that? I actually owned the logo and I licensed it back to, to Reebok and that's how this fantastic relationship started and that's why Greg Norman Collection is where today. So that's how my brand started, just as simple as that. Now, where do you take it from there? It's simple. It's a being aware of what the consumer wants, what the vertical, vertically integrated space that the game of golf gives you. So I identified the soft goods side of things. I'd already had a, a good identity with the hard goods side of things with the manufacturer. Now I identified other things like wine and beef, everything that's connected you know, through a clubhouse or a restaurant. So I vertically grew my company that way through simple branding. How do you keep yourself in top shape? Um, I, I am a bit of a workout nut, not quite honestly. I, I would call it my gym, gym porn. Um, at the end of the day, I, I work out between four and six o'clock probably five to six days a week, five days minimum. And it's really my stress reliever. Um, you know, all day long you're doing things, making decisions, you're with people. With, and so to me, when I go in the gym, I'll either turn on the music really loud, or I'll either turn on whatever show I want, want to watch. Very seldom, if any at time, do I ever watch golf. <laughs> I'll maybe watch a little bit of tennis, um, but it's mostly music. So I uh, take the stress of my day away. Get my heart rate up very high. I love to sweat, and deep in sweat, and that gets cleansed of my body and my mind, and uh, and that's how I do it. So come 6:30, I'm having my protein drink, and then come 6:45, I'm having a cold beer. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, what is a a money tip, an unusual money tip that you could give people? I tell you, the best tip that I've ever given myself is the 30, 30, 30, 10 rule. Now add all that up, it's 100%, right? So if I made, in my early career, I was making $28 a week as an assistant pro. Now think about that, 28 bucks a week. How do you live on 28 bucks a week? The 30, 30, 30, 10 rule, okay? 30% for taxes, 30% for cost of living, 30% for what you want to do, and 10% was my slush fund. So to this day, I still run the 30, 30, 30, 10 rule, and it's never gotten me into any problems. That's great. Which book changed your life? The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. There are no ordinary moments. And why? Well, you better read the book and then you'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually a question more for myself since I'm trying to learn golf. What's the one thing you need to remember when you're learning golf? Manage your own expectations. Um, I think I see it all the time, no matter how good you are, no matter how bad you are, we always think we're better than what we truly are. And <clears throat> You'll see the best players in the world always are on a safe side. You'll see a 15 or 20 handicap player pull out a 7-iron and try and hit that perfect shot every time. So if you only hit a 7-iron 150 yards and it's 150 yards to carry the water, take a 6-iron and hit a soft 6-iron. If you hit it 20 feet long, who cares? If you hit it um, you know, a little bit off center, you're still gonna carry the water. So manage your expectations. How do you inspire your team? Uh, by leadership. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer. You, you don't ask anybody to do what you don't do yourself or cannot do yourself. Um, and really empowering them to feel like they can go out there and 
impress their boss. I don't mean, I shouldn't use the word impress, but allow them to go and show their boss that maybe the boss is wrong. Maybe the boss should think, think about it this way. And allow the boss then to go away, or me to go away and say, you know what? Jane Smith, she was right. She put me right on point there. I didn't see it at the time. I thought about it. So let's go implement that. And now, now all of a sudden you create more strength and harmony in, in your company because people feel like they're empowered with their advice. You travel quite a bit, so how do you stay sane on the road? You never stay sane on the road, that's for sure. Um, look, I, I don't know what the secret is. There's no secret to jet drag. Everybody tells you what to do, but at the end of the day, just drink a lot of water. Um, try and get on the time change the best you possibly can by <clears throat> not just when you land on a long trip, but whether it's a 14-hour, 16-hour time change. Don't go to bed. You've got to push yourself through it. It's mentally tough. It's mentally demanding. Whether you go through a walk or walk through the park or go into a gym or do something, stimulate your blood flow, get it going to whatever you can. And I think the, the best thing you can do is get in the sunlight. I think your, your sunlight refreshes you a little bit. So if you can get outside as soon as you get there, great for you. How do you get your best ideas? Listening, uh, listening, reading, um, and thinking. Um, some of my most productive times are sitting with my wife, having a cup of coffee on a Sunday morning at 6 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning, uh, looking out over the intercoastal waterway or just the other night, we, we went down, had a cocktail on the seawall looking at the ocean and just talk about not everything, just talk about one or two specific things and just say, hey, this is what's going through my mind. This is how I feel. Because you know what? You can't harbor everything. Um, even though you're supposed to have all the answers, you don't have all the answers. You need a confidant, a sounding board where you can actually say something that might be a little bit derogatory or a little bit inflammatory and you know it's not going to come back to you in a hostile way. It's going to be coming back to you as a constructive, truly believing, redirecting you and cleaning your thoughts out. And finally, what would you do all over again, Greg, if you could? In my prime or leading into my prime, I would have had a sports psychologist. I would have had a trainer and I would have had, most importantly, a masseuse. Um, nowadays, the guys, you know, because you, you work so hard, you hit so many golf balls, uh, your body gets so fatigued at the end of the day. If I had a masseuse at the end of the day, just walked out all those toxins out of my system and let me relax, I would have had a better night's sleep and be ready to go the next day. We didn't know any of that back then, back to 30 years ago. Um, and really a good sports psychologist because, <laughs> again, going back to that sounding board, having somebody to talk to you and having the right answers coming back to you, it's really important. Um, so the guys today, uh, the benefactors of science, not only just with equipment, uh, but with how they the videoing, understanding your golf swing, it's real time, you can do it on your iPhone, which is just having no blurriness on your phone, um, but it's also related straight back to your coach or to your sports psychologist. It's instant feedback, so you could be out of sync one afternoon when you walked off a golf course. By the time you got back the next morning, you are sharp, you're ready to go, and you're full of confidence. Next week on Radiate, About.com founder Scott Kernan, who's one of the few entrepreneurs out there who can say he built a web 1.0 company that's now survived 20 years on. Thanks so much for joining me. Please sign up for our newsletter at radiateinc.com for updates and subscribe to us on iTunes. Also, please like Radiate Inc. on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. See you next week on Radiate. Radiate.